to Wellbeing for Everyday Life with me, Maeve Halpin. I'm here in studio today with Bob Collins, who is here in his capacity as president of the Irish Association, which is an all-Ireland cultural organisation founded in 1938. So you're very welcome to the studio, Bob, and thank Thank you so much for coming in. So you've also had a varied career, of course. You're the former director general of RTE, and you also chaired the Arts Council in the north of Ireland and were the chief commissioner on the Equality Commission in Northern Ireland. So maybe we'll start with the Irish Association because it's something I hadn't heard about actually until quite recently and it sounds like a fascinating organisation. So maybe you can tell us a bit about what its full title is for a start and how it originated in 1938. It's Well, thank you for the opportunity to be uh, part of of your schedule. Uh, Its formal title is the Irish Association for Cultural, Economic and Social Relations. And it tries to do what it says on the tin uh, in, in, in the work that we do. As you say, it was established in 1938 um, in unpromising times for relations uh, within and between uh, the jurisdictions. And it arose from a realisation that the quality of relationships between the two communities in Northern Ireland, uh, between Roman Catholics and Protestants, were, to put it mildly, not good and uh, didn't show a great deal of sign of improving at that stage. And there was a degree of hostility um, uh, that needed to be addressed in some way. And strange though it may seem, uh, particularly from the perspective of this side of the island, the impetus for its establishment came from um, the Protestant community, from... uh, Major General Montgomery uh, and um, uh, Viscount Charlemont. Uh, Charlemont had been First Minister for Education in the uh, Northern Ireland government in the 1920s and a very liberal-minded individual he was in that role. And with a group of um, fellow citizens uh, drawn from across the communities, they established this association uh, to seek to find ways to bring people together, to identify things that uh, were held in common, uh, to look at ways in which some attempt might be made to bridge the gulf, uh, the divide that existed, and that was growing uh, at that time for all manner of reasons. And it has, through good times and bad, through thick and thin, uh, continued uh, to do that uh, over the years. And clearly... In difficult days, during the, the, the days of violence, uh, there was probably more focus on its work, um, as there was in a, a lot of the um, north-south efforts, a lot of cross-community efforts, uh, had, a, had a sharper focus because people were, were looking uh, in a very particular way at what was happening in Northern Ireland in, in those times. That was in the 70s. In through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, and over the last 20 years, there has been a sense of somewhat misplaced uh, belief that all oh, that's over, we've resolved that, that book can now be closed and we can move on to something uh, else. The Irish Association has uh, continued to plug away. We do a variety of things, uh, ways of bringing people together, holding events in, in Northern Ireland, in the Republic, uh, attended by people from both sides. And the emergence of the dreaded um, word uh, Brexit into the uh, language has given rise to a, a new energy, I suppose, and a new need for, um, uh, for this kind of focus. Because 
whatever else happens or whatever else is true, whatever shape the UK's withdrawal from the European Union ultimately takes, whatever the constitutional or physical or other relations between the two jurisdictions on this island are or between this island and the neighbouring island of Great Britain. The underlying reality is that the people who live within Northern Ireland and the people who live throughout the island will have to share this space and will have to find ways of getting on better than they have been doing. And the tensions that have been generated by the uh, the Brexit debate by the collapse of the uh, political institutions in Northern Ireland uh, have driven people apart um, uh, instead of uh, as a sharp turn in the process that was bringing them ever so slowly together. This is in the north of Ireland now, the in, two communities. In Northern Ireland. Um, mm. mm-hmm. And I think that expecting too much it can lead to severe disappointment and can lead to a sense of failure sometimes mm-hmm. in, a, in all aspects of life. Mm. And I think that there is a sense in which um, too much was expected uh, of the Good Friday Agreement, that it would resolve everything, if not instantly, but very quickly. Uh, and that the old animosities um, would tend to fade away. But life isn't like that. And uh, in circumstances where people who feel separate identities, who feel separate nationalities, who have... Uh, long traditions of separateness and difference and where difference is perceived as threatening and challenging it takes longer than one generation to resolve that Uh, these tensions have been about for hundreds of years Uh, they were obviously exacerbated and accelerated because of the violence Uh, and to come down from that level of intensity and to encourage what we would like to think of as normality. Is anything normal? Is any society normal? But that easy way of living together that most people enjoy uh, and just in brackets, we shouldn't be too smug about life in this part of the island either because there are there are many divides here that, but we don't speak about them as often as we do about those uh, that are pretty obvious Mm -hmm. in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. And the Brexit, the collapse of the institutions, that sharp divide between the political parties, uh, which in turn has tended to drive the communities farther and farther into their respective corners, all of that is made sharper by by Brexit and by its implications and consequences. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things that the Irish Association has been doing is to look at ways in which when all of this is done, however it turns out, how do we heal the wounds? How do we try to bring people back together again? Um, what is it about different identities uh, that can enable us to live easily together? How do we get each side, and obviously there are more than two sides to everything, but uh, how do we get people to respect the other tradition the other culture, the other history, the other reality. And how do we persuade people to understand the role and responsibility that they have? It's not waiting for the other person to accommodate to them. What can I do to 
respect the extent to which you're different from me. Uh, what is it that I can do that will make you feel more comfortable living where you do? What is it that you can do that will respect who I am, make me feel more comfortable living in circumstances where we um, where we find ourselves? And there is an unfortunate reality in that, as in education, where all but 5% of the population are educated in separate streams, um, broadly speaking, Catholic and Protestant. Some overlaps, but 5% go to fully integrated schools. In the same way, in social housing in particular, more than 90% of people in social housing live in estates which are more than 90% segregated. And you can live a great deal of your life without meeting somebody from the other side. Uh, You can go through your childhood and play in the streets and go to school and meet your friends. And it's not until you go to work or maybe go to third level that you begin to encounter uh, other people. It's not as stark as that, but that is not an exceptional reality by any means, particularly in, in cities and big towns where there can be that kind of anonymity. Uh, and how do we at the same time get some sense of greater awareness between North and South. Because, and I know from my own uh, time in RTE, there was a real sense of impatience, I was going to say, frustration is probably a better word. The audience didn't particularly like the amount of attention we gave to Northern Ireland. Uh, And it was one of those things in which there would be very significant amounts of complaints and people telephoning. I always felt that it was because of a sense of futility that they felt that there was nothing they could do about it. Um, it was beyond their reach. It was terrible, but they couldn't resolve it, couldn't stop it, couldn't calm it, couldn't help anybody. I remember this. Yeah, absolutely. That's the way it felt. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, though, when this finished, then people said, as we said, book closed, problem solved, mm. onwards mm. to the next chapter. Mm. And I think that it's never going to be like that. And there is a real challenge to people who live in the South to be a bit more curious about what life is like in Northern Ireland, to have a greater sense of what that reality is. And particularly, not everybody in the South is a 32 county nationalist, but a lot of people are or claim to be or have that sense. They're unambiguously Irish anyway. Um, although happily uh, the population of the state is changing and becoming more diverse and uh, uh, which in, in my own view is an absolutely wonderful thing one of the most positive things that has happened in my lifetime I think Very much so I'd agree about that and, But how do you get people to have a sense of interest in what's happening in Northern Ireland a sense of engagement with it mm-hmm. a sense of fellowship with people from whom they feel very different um, what is it like to be a unionist? What is it like to be British living on the mm-hmm. island of Ireland? Um, and getting to and what is it like to be a nationalist living in Northern Ireland? It is not the same as being, inverted commas, a nationalist living in the Republic. These are different realities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I sometimes say, um, if anybody's ever been to Kylemore Abbey in the west of Ireland, wonderful place, beautiful Connemara. Um, was for a long time a convent school but there was an absolutely spectacular 19th century walled garden 
built by the original uh, people who lived in that fantastic house. And that was maintained by the nuns through all of the years that they were there until it became too much for them um, and for the individual nun who was the person who womanfully kept it going to the end. And very quickly, nature reclaimed it. Uh, And what was visible and understandable as one thing was suddenly vanished. And the same can happen in relations between people. And in the almost 100 years since um, these two parts of the island have moved in their different directions, although still situated in the same, on the same piece of ground, it becomes unrecognisable in many respects. And it's a bit like the garden. A huge amount of work has been done in Kylemore Abbey to restore these gardens. And a huge amount of work needs to be done in Northern Ireland and in the Republic to restore that awareness of each other. Absolutely. Well, there's a huge amount of work to be done there, but uh, I can see, it's, I think you're absolutely right that we in the South maybe need to become more engaged and more aware and more conscious that we have a role to play as well. And the Irish Association has been doing this since 1938. So people can go online and find its Irish Association. They can, the Irish Association, um, Google it and they will, uh, they will, they will find it. And, yeah. um they will see some of the, it, it's possible to become a member of it. Uh, mm-hmm. You can, all that information is there on the website. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, the uh, there's a modest membership fee, mm-hmm. but a lot of the events uh, uh, don't have any mm-hmm. cost attached. Mm-hmm. You, we had a, um, a conference in Dublin um, last month on, on religion and it's linked to identity and uh, and we will have a significant conference in Belfast in November on living together, um, revisiting identity and belonging, uh, just looking at the way in which that operates. OK, fantastic. I'm here talking to Bob Collins about the Irish Association. And we'll go now to your first piece of music, which is Moraid Nigonal, Spanish Lady. As I was walking through Dublin City About the hour of twelve at night It was there I saw a fair pretty female Washing her feet by candlelight First she washed them, then she dried them Over a fire of ambry coals And in all my life I never did see a maid so neat about the souls She had twenty, eighteen, sixteen, fourteen Twelve, ten, eight, six, four, two, nine She had nineteen, seventeen, fifteen, thirteen, eleven, nine, seven, five, three, and one I stopped to look but the watchman passed To see young fella now the night is late and along with your home or I will wrestle you straight away to the Bridewell Gate. I got a look from the Spanish lady, hot as a fire of ambry coals. And in all my life I never did see a maid so neat about the souls. She had twenty, eighteen, sixteen, fourteen. 
Dublin South FM. Oh, will you look at them go? I wish I had their energy. Ah, they're good for the soul, though, aren't they? I can't imagine life without Lucky. (laughs) But he might outlive me yet. Oh, well, take my advice and sign up for a Dog's Trust Canine Care card. It's completely free, and it's given me such peace of mind since I did. What's that? Well, it's simple, really. It means if you pass away before Lucky, Dogs Trust will take him in and give him the care and love he needs until they match him with the perfect forever home. That sounds terrific. How much did you say it costs? It doesn't cost a cent. Great. How do I sign up? Just text CARE to 50100 and they'll call you with more information. Or you can go to dogstrust.ie. Well, that's wonderful advice. I'll do that right away. Here, Lucky. Good boy. Whatever loan you're looking for, wedding loans, holiday loans, car or home improvement loans, make sure you talk to your local Capital Credit Union, where there are no hidden charges or early repayment penalties on your loan. Loans subject to approval, terms and conditions apply, Capital Credit Union Limited, regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Senior Line is a confidential telephone service for older people. Free phone 1-800-80-45-91. We're open every day of the year from 10am till 10pm, including Christmas Day and New Year. So it's free phone 1-800-80-45-91. We're there if you need someone to talk to and need someone to listen. We're older people too, so we will understand 
and we're very good at listening. Did you get the senior line number? It's free phone 1800 80 45 91. Your community radio for South Dublin. This is Dublin South FM. Welcome back to Wellbeing for Everyday Life with me, Maeve Halpin. I'm here in studio with Bob Collins, who's president of the Irish Association. Bob has been former director general of RTE and has had a number of other roles over the years. But we're here today talking about the Irish Association, which was founded in 1938, a cross-border, all-Ireland cultural organisation to promote dialogue, I presume, and contact between the all the different traditions, north and south. Putting uh, harmony and dialogue in the place of enmity and passion, uh, so, I suppose, uh, as the founders put it. Or excellent. Put it. And considering partition, the d- division of Ireland into the six counties in the north and the 26 counties in the south happened in 1922. And this was just 16 years later that some of the unionist uh, people in the north had a kind of a vision, really, of... The, necess- the necessity for creating channels of communication to in- to heal the divide at the time, presumably. It 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 was certainly an imaginative step to take uh, in those uh, times when when there was such stark um, uh, divide, and it, it was uh, prescient as well in one sense, in a way that they might not have uh, considered in the context of what happened the following year with the outbreak of the Second World War and the way in which that exacerbated the difference with this, uh, the the South being neutral uh, in that conflict and Northern Ireland being actively involved as part of the UK and the extent to which American service people and so on were in Northern Ireland. And 1938, the year in which the, the, the bases had been, the ports had been returned uh, in um, that diplomatic achievement by the Devalera government um, in a circumstance where the Chamberlain government, I think, um, saw that as being a real manifestation of what could be achieved through dialogue and diplomacy as opposed to war. Uh, and in the light of all that was happening in his particular perspective on it, that was a very significant uh, achievement and a marker of what what might happen, and that was one of the incentives, I think, for for the UK government to take that position that they did at the time. But the fact that the Irish Association had been established before the war, I think, was important because it, it, it did its work. It was beginning its work through that period when there was a divide, and particularly in the post-war period when um, the Republic, as, as, as it was bec- about to become, was then isolated uh, to a very significant extent for a number of years after the war because of the neutrality uh, excluded from uh, membership of the United Nations, uh, unwilling to participate in a whole lot of other activities, that it could be, it was inward-looking in its nature and character. And the existence of this body, however tentatively or tenuously, began to that process of improving uh, engagements, and we have to remember for those who of your, your listeners who will pop up and down uh, to Northern Ireland nowadays without a bother, without recognising when exactly they've passed from one jurisdiction to the other until they see that <coughs> it's miles per hour as opposed to kilometres per hour. It wasn't like that then. 
it was a bit of a song and dance to pass between uh, from one part to the other and customs posts and all the rest of it, even in those peaceful, um, quiet, halcyon days. Uh, so uh, it's it, the fact of its existence at that time was important. It's not, of course, the only body that is working on a north-south basis. It's striking that when the division is so much marked or expressed through religion, that all the churches maintain themselves as all-island uh, churches, the, the Christian churches, the Roman Catholic, Presbyterian Church of Ireland, Methodist, are, are all um, uh, 32 county all-island institutions. Uh, many sporting organisations um, continue to operate on a on a, an all-island basis, the GA and rugby being uh, classic examples. Um, and s- particularly since the, in the 1970s and onwards, a lot of north-south entities have emerged to do really, really good work. Uh, Cooperation North, which became Cooperation Ireland, being a particular case in point. And there are east-west bodies as well. There's the British-Irish Association, in which I happen to be very involved as well, uh, which tries to bridge that particular gap between that island and this island uh, and to ensure that there is some level of understanding, at least in government and in decision-making circles, about the nature of the real nature of life on this one and the complexities and the complications. So that's what the... It's in attempting to do something uh, positive to make a contribution that the association exists and uh, it has a couple of hundred, uh, upwards of a couple of hundred members, individuals, all of them, um, nobody representing any uh, organisation or anybody else or any body of citizens, just themselves. We have um, a series of lunch meetings across the year, some in Belfast, some in Dublin, um, at which we gather, not just the members, anybody can can come and um, as long as you pay for your lunch uh, and we have a speaker who comes to uh, talk to us and then as I said earlier we organise uh, conferences we had one last month on religion um, here in Dublin here in Dublin and, and the role that religion can and question mark should play as being a part of identity uh, in terms of uh, education in terms of um, uh, public and, uh, and community life and the role for people who don't profess any religion. Uh, it was a, a former uh, president of the Humanist Association spoke at that meeting and spoke ex- extremely well. It was a really, really good conference and um, much appreciated, very well attended, as was uh, last November's event in Belfast. And as we hope, uh, next November in Belfast, we will be having a, a conference. Our working title at the moment is Living Together, Revisiting Identity and Belonging. Uh, because that is a key part of the issue to be overcome. Uh, how do people with different senses of identity share the same space? And we are fated to share the same space. We're not all going to vanish from the island. And whatever happens in the future the people who live together in Northern Ireland will continue to live together in Northern Ireland. And how can that be made easier? And what ways are open to encouraging mm-hmm. people? Mm-hmm. And how can, as I said, how can we in this part of the island learn to know more, learn to care more, learn to be more involved uh, with uh, what's happening in the other jurisdictions so that we have 
a better sense uh, of the people with whom we share this place in the same way as we have that same sense of responsibility, I would think, to get to know more about the people who have come more recently to live uh, in this place. And the people of Ireland, all sides of it, should, I think, be more than usually aware of um, the reasons why people leave their countries of origin and the real and gritty reasons why people leave their countries of origin and go to somewhere else. Because Irish Irish people have been doing it for centuries. For centuries. But also to recognise then the contribution that those people can make when they come to their new country as we celebrate the contribution that Irish people made when they went to other places, whether it was to Britain or to America or Australia or New Zealand or wherever they're found across the globe. Uh, And as we know, they're everywhere. And that that sense of opening up, opening ourselves up, because it isn't just that the people who come in have to change and accommodate to those of us who have been here longer than they, but that we must all, I think, have doors and windows that can open, uh, doors of welcome and windows through which we can see into other <coughs> people's lives. Yeah, well, I know from a psychological point of view, it's it's very good for us to bump up against difference, you know, because it makes us have to stop and think about our own perspective and maybe question it and, you know, learn from people who are coming from maybe a very different perspective. I know my life is very much enriched by the people I've become friends with here in Ireland from countries that I'd never have got to myself, you know, people from Asia and other parts of the world. Like, it's it's a uh, it's it's a very enriching experience I find for me. It's it's like it takes a little bit more work in the beginning, you know, because they're coming from a very different place, you know. Uh, but like the diversity of life in Ireland now to me is tremendously enriching for me as an individual, but I see it also culturally. We have, you know, people coming in with all different kinds of cuisines, you know, all different kinds of sports, like all different kinds of ways of understanding the world. Like it's really important, I think, that we 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 capitalise on all this and give people the opportunities they ca- that to, to grow and develop and flourish here in this country. I, I agree absolutely with that. It, uh, I, for me, uh, I think as I said this earlier, is it's it's um, it has been one of the most significant um, and welcoming developments um, in my lifetime that the country has opened up, that there are new voices and new faces, uh, that there is a greater sense of. Um, being part of the wider world um, that it's not just that the wider world is there that we can go out to it mm. but that it can uh, mm. come into us there I often wondered when I was in Northern Ireland um, uh, and not just there but everywhere is there something hardwired in human beings to resist difference uh, because it's perceived as a threat from somewhere in the dim and distant part of our evolutionary uh, development. Um, But difference and diversity, as you've said, can be profoundly enriching. Um, And difference does not necessarily bring with it division. We impose ourselves, we impose division. Um, But it is not Division is not a part of being different. It's not a necessary consequence of being different or no, being diverse. No. Uh, and um, it's, uh, and in a whole variety of ways, we should know that there are divisions in terms of class, 
there are divisions uh, in terms of settled and traveller. Mm. Uh, there are divisions. Gender. Between, I'm just about to say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know, or we should know, from time immemorial, just how successfully we have excluded women uh, from active participation in so many aspects of life until comparatively recently. And that that process is not over. It has scarcely begun. I agree. Well, I think there is something in, in us that can be feel threatened by difference, but at the same time, there's an equal and opposite push towards moving forward and moving out and exploring the new. You know, that's that's the whole history of human development. Ever since we left Africa, we've colonised the whole entire world, you know. And there has been movement of peoples across borders and across continents, like since we, since we evolved. So that is really a really powerful part of our capacity, I think. You know, now we've gone to the moon and we've, we've gone to Mars. And, you know, we want to push out into the unknown as well and find what's out there, even though it is scary. So, like, that's a very powerful drive within humans. But I, I think, Bob, though, that, like, to, we're talking, like, a lot of Irish people have travelled abroad, of course. Most people have been abroad on holidays. There is this sense of the kind of global village in a way that, you know, we're all the same humans at the end of the day on the planet, you know. So that what what's going on in the north of Ireland seems so regressive and so partisan and so sectarian, this division between Catholics and Protestants. Whereas when, you, when you've been away from it for a while, you realise they're both Christian religions that are actually quite similar compared to, if you compare them to something like Islam or Buddhism or, or atheism, and there's this entrenchment between these two populations that seems so regressive to us now at this stage. We only have one minute before the break if you want to just say something about We're that. not unique in that respect. Um, we sometimes think that this is the only part of the world where there is tension. It's not. Um, in so many places, um, the developments in um, Kashmir in the last couple of days shows the difference that exists between Hindu and uh, Muslim in that subcontinent. In the Middle East, um, it, between Hungarians and Romanians in some places. There are there are all manner of divisions and difficulties in the world, but you're right, they have to be challenged. They have to be challenged, yes. So now I'm here with Bob Collins, who's president of the Irish Association, and the next piece of music is from Portugal, and it's Amelia Rodriguez Uma Casa. Portuguesa fica bem Pão e vinho sobre a mesa E se a porta humildemente bate alguém Senta-se à mesa com a gente Fica bem esta franqueza Fica bem que o povo nunca desmente A alegria da pobreza Está nesta grande riqueza De dar e ficar contente Quatro paredes caiadas Cheirinho alegria, um cacho de uvas douradas, duas rosas no jardim, o São José das Lejos, mais o sol da primavera. Com certeza, não é com certeza uma casa portuguesa. 
sozinho do meu lar A fartura de carinho E a cortina da janela o luar Mais o sol que bate nela Basta pouco, pouco cheiro para ladrar Uma existência singela É só amor, pão e vinho e caldeiro do berlinho É fumegar na tigela Broadcasting from the Dundrum Town Centre, this is Dublin South FM. Hi folks, it's Paddy Cunningham here letting you know that you can join me each Tuesday evening for a brand new country music show right here on Dublin South FM. Each Tuesday from 8pm, Country Roads is going to bring you the best in Irish and American country music, looking at that week's country chart and a featured artist. So why not join me each Tuesday evening from 8pm right here on Dublin South FM for Country Roads. The best in Irish and American country music on Dublin South FM with Paddy Cunningham. Do you like funk and soul? Are you into big brass sections? that are tighter than Prince's trousers? Do you like bass lines that are so filthy that they should be put in the kitchen sink and washed with the dishes? Then tune into Bowl of Soul with me, Porig Dooney, every Tuesday night at 7pm, only on Dublin South 93.9 FM. There'll be funk, soul, and a nice bit of good-natured wholesome crack thrown in for good measure. That's Bowl of Soul, every Tuesday at 7pm, only on Dublin South 93.9 FM. 8 o'clock Saturday nights on Dublin South 93.9 FM means Pop Gear with me, legendary drag queen Veda and me, Ian. Ian, my straight mate, Ian. It's a show for people who think that the coolest thing about a car is a car radio. We love classic pop, so if you love classic pop, join us every Saturday night at 8 o'clock on 93.9 Dublin South FM. FM? I'm so FM. Broadcasting to South Dublin on 93.9. This is Dublin South FM. Welcome back to Wellbeing for Everyday Life with me, Maeve Halpin. I'm here in studio with Bob Collins, who's president of the Irish Association, an old Ireland cultural organisation that was uh, initiated in 1938 to create dialogue and communication between 
throughout the Ireland and between the different communities in the Ireland. And anybody can become an, a member of this organisation, Bob, isn't that right? It costs about 20 quid a year or something. It's a nominal kind of fee. And then you will be able to attend the events, the lunches and the conferences sure. and so on. Yeah. But of course, they're open to the general they public are, yeah. anyway as well. Yeah. So people can find them online at it's irishassociation.ie, is it? Oh, okay. the, I think, uh, .org, maybe. Uh, yes, uh, yes, uh, yes, uh, yes uh, .org. But anyway, the Irish Association, if you Google it, and uh, its aims are very laudable, I think, to promote harmony and communication and uh, 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 cooperation between people from different traditions and different backgrounds, which never did we need it more with um, our Brexit coming down the tracks, I guess. And the fact that the Stormont is not sitting, isn't, isn't that for quite yeah. a while now? Yeah, and uh, in fact, Westminster passed laws to uh, change the situation in relation to abortion and gay marriage in the north of Ireland recently did it not? They did uh, and it is they set a time limit that if they unless the institutions the assembly and the executive are re-established by a specified date in October then th- that would take effect the law would be determined uh, from Westminster. So that was kind of to give them a fright and to say look we're, go- we're going to take the reins here if well, you guys I think don't it get it together. designed to, uh, to nod towards the fact that um, th- these decisions should properly be taken within Northern Ireland but in the absence of uh, the executive and the assembly which would normally take those make those laws take those the decision to change those laws um that if they weren't back by a certain date so that they could take their democratic decision, well, then Westminster would uh, would impose that decision from the centre. It is, it's disliked by a whole lot of people for a variety of reasons. One, because... The fact that Westminster made the decision yeah, is disliked. Is the, one, because it this is Westminster elbowing in where the local assembly should be doing uh, taking decisions if it ex- if it were uh, functioning and secondly there are some who dislike it because they would prefer that decision to be taken because it might be a different decision that would be taken um, and uh, it, it will be interesting to see what happens I mean I think that the Northern Ireland is more conservative uh, than um, the rest of Ireland or the rest of the UK uh, and in that sense there would be would there be I don't know that there would be a majority in the assembly in favour of changing the law in relation to abortion uh, there may be in relation to marriage equality um, both of those have been voted down in the past uh, but we will have to look at that space and see what happens uh, over the coming months. Okay, can you tell me in a nutshell why Stormont isn't sitting? Why the Executive and the Assembly aren't sitting? This will be a very big nut if it fits into this nutshell. Have a um, go. Because uh, there are very divided views. I mean, there are, there are different opinions as to what the reason is. Essentially, the reason, the technical reason that the Executive collapsed was that then Deputy First Minister Martin McGuinness resigned and when the Deputy First Minister resigns, the, the First Minister falls as well and vice versa because they are co-equal positions um, and attempts were made to revive it uh, there was an election but they couldn't come together they couldn't reach agreement they almost reached agreement in uh, last year 2018 but it fell apart mainly that stage because the DUP I think couldn't um, the party wouldn't or couldn't accept what the negotiators had um, uh, agreed to uh, the initial 
uh, failure or reason was principally because of the conditions that Sinn Féin set. And these two parties have been um, jostling with each other uh, ever since. And in the current talks, all of the parties are involved. And I think that the the three smaller parties, the Ulster Unionists, the SDLP and the Alliance Party, are being more active uh, and are allowed to be more active and involved in attempting to shape a, a new future. It's a very... One should never and one can never lose hope. Um, and, and at some stage, it will be resolved. There's no question about that. Uh, but whether it can be resolved in this set of talks or whether it is, I think, has a large question mark over it. I wouldn't rule out the possibility that by the end of September or sometime in October that they will come together uh, to re-establish the Assembly and the Executive. It is a scandal that it hasn't been, that the Assembly and Executive haven't been sitting. It's not irrelevant. It makes a real difference to the lives of people. There are so many areas where decisions cannot be taken, uh, even though... Westminster changed the law to give civil servants more power uh, to take certain decisions. The reality is they're they're limited and civil servants don't want to put themselves in a position or be in a position where they're taking decisions that should be taken by elected representatives. Mm -hmm, Of course. It should more properly be taken by democratically constituted assembly and government. And are they all still getting their salaries? No, they're not. Uh, They're salaries were very substantially reduced. They're doing a lot of work on behalf of their constituents in the normal way. They're making, um, they're engaging with people. They're providing the kind of advice and assistance that elected representatives usually do. One of the interesting things has been that they, not so much a shift of power, but in the absence of this, what has emerged is that the local authorities um, are functioning very well. Belfast is a classic example. Derry City Council is another one. Uh, Belfast is the biggest of the local authorities and it is working very effectively and the the parties within it are managing to do things on a joint basis in a very commendable and very productive and very positive way uh, so that life can go on and life does go on and the real danger is that people when this hasn't been there for two and a half years these democratic uh, uh, processes and democracy is important um, elected representatives have a really important role to play. People are very cynical these days about politics and about uh, which is dangerous. Um, but one of the real dangers in Northern Ireland is that people look beyond the political process. They look beyond the Good Friday Agreement. They ignore the fact that that was such a complex, detailed, subtle, um, imaginative, carefully negotiated, hard-battled negotiations on all sides and they look beyond that as if there is some easy solution that nobody has thought of it. There isn't. The, the Good Friday Agreement is in many respects the ideal um, solution. It's not perfect because there is the perfect is never available at this side of the grave, I'm afraid. Uh, and um, that's one of the dangers for me is that what was achieved, what was brought together very painstakingly and what has been shown to work uh, would be set aside and that people would think that there was an easier and better way. There isn't. Well, I know, certainly for someone like me, born in the 1960s, you know, who grew up like with this horror and news like on a regular basis in the north of Ireland, the Good Friday Agreement was such an extraordinary achievement, like such a milestone. And to contemplate that we could ever go back to what it was in the 
70s and 80s, you know, when there were bombs and there were British soldiers on the streets. And it was just, it was bad enough for us to look at it, but to think of people having to live in those environments, you know, horrific. So I definitely think people shouldn't... uh, likely throw away anything that came with the Good Friday Agreement. No, there is a real responsibility in political parties to to reach agreements and um, the idea of um, I think of having rigid preconditions unless X happens, I won't do Y uh, doesn't make sense in normal life and it doesn't make sense in democratic Mm -hmm. life and I think Mm. that um, the sooner that the parties are able to um, Mm -hmm. And it will not be difficult because they are very, very, they're very different. Uh, they're sharply different. They have different views of the world. They have different aspirations. They have different objectives. They have a different sense of the past. They have a different mm. view of why we are where we are. They have a very different view of what they would like to see in the future. So I, I don't minimize the problems that they have, but that is the challenge for them. And that is the mm. responsibility they have as elected representatives um, mm. because the price of failure is too high. It's too high. But like for the Good Friday Agreement, we had support from America, didn't we? We had George Mitchell, who came in as a broker or, or as a negotiator. Wasn't that true? It, and apparently he was quite brilliant as well. Well, there's no doubt that the engagement of the European Union and the fact that Ireland and the UK were members of the European Union was a powerful um, had a powerful impact on the relations between these two states. It is very easy to forget how cold, how frosty, how underdeveloped, how tense, how distant uh, those relations were until, when I say comparatively comparatively recently, say the 1970s, <coughs> it's only 40-something years ago. Um, but in, in, in the span of history, that's a, a drop. Uh, the EU's, the joint membership of the two states in the European Union was crucial and the assistance of the EU's institutions. And without question... The engagement of the United States, beginning very tentatively with Jimmy Carter, then a little bit more with Reagan, and flowering uh, under Clinton's presidency. <coughs> excuse me. When that was hugely um, um, influential and powerful, and George Mitchell's role in chairing the negotiations that led to the Good Friday Agreement, <coughs> and subsequently in on the issue of decommissioning, they were they were absolutely vitally important, um, and I think that it also opened it allowed people to look upwards a bit, because I've always felt Northern Ireland the horizon is at the skirting board, you know, that, and you need to elevate the gaze to look beyond and see. It's a, a good way to describe it. It's a good way to describe it, and unfortunately, we can't really look to America for any diplomacy really these days, can we? Well, it's I think America is taking a different position in the world. Um, on a whole lot of things, but also I think that <clears throat> some of these issues have to be resolved within within these islands, between the parties in Northern Ireland in particular and with the two governments. And there was a sense, I think, that the UK government uh, stood back a little bit, maybe thought that Northern Ireland should be weaned off um, the, the support of Mother in Westminster. But that was a risky uh, proposition to begin with um, because... It, this is not people being willful, uh, I think. This is simply a reflection of the enormity of the challenge of overcoming uh, the, the accumulated weight of problems from the past. Uh, the, the real division 
too much history and too little geography in one sense. Um, getting people, as I said earlier, of different sense of identity, different traditions, different views of the future, different aspirations for the future, to find ways of living together, particularly after 30 years of violence. And, after, and with an undercurrent of violence still at a very, very low level, but still going on. And the murder of Lyra McKee uh, brought it back very much. And the, the previous uh, month or so before that, when the car bomb exploded in Derry City, and the the risk that any of these things could spark something white, but nobody wants to go back to what we are called the bad old days. But it's very easy to dislocate community life. It's very easy. And it takes a huge amount of work to put it back together again. Once it takes a great deal of work dissipated. to avoid. It, it takes a great deal of, sorry, I didn't wish to interrupt you. It takes a great mm. deal of work to avoid <clears throat> um, that kind of dislocation. But undoubtedly then, if it happens, it takes an even greater amount of work to, to re-establish and to start at square one and rebuild trust. And political generosity is not in plentiful supply as a rule anywhere. It is a very fragile flower altogether in Northern Ireland. Absolutely. So, and the Irish Association seems to be doing Trojan work here in terms of keeping the channels of communication open in all directions. Well, it it makes its modest contribution to this, I think, and and lots of people do, and I don't want to make any exaggerated claims for what we try to do. But it is important that people engage, and it is important that that there is support for people who engage it. I mean, support from from people, um, and that they encourage uh, that process of of coming together. And in all of this, one shouldn't wouldn't want your listeners to go away with the impression <clears throat> that there isn't a great deal of this going. That there aren't a lot of people who are involved. All across Northern Ireland, there mm. are communities where huge amounts are being done by ordinary women are playing a crucially important role in this. As we do with everything, I think. <laughs> and nobody gives us any credit for it. No mean people, so Davis said. So now I've been talking here to Bob Collins, who's president of the Irish Association and All-Ireland Cultural Organisation, open to everybody to join, doing fantastic work. You'll find it online at theirishassociation.org. So thank you so much for coming into the programme, well, Bob. Thank you, I'm delighted to and be here. my last piece of music is Chulan by Maria Tanas. Mm-hmm. 